0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 12, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Imagine that you're on trial for murder and you want to go for total exoneration. Your attorney says, no, we must admit your guilt. And the court refuses to let you fire your attorney. And your attorney, as planned, says you are in fact guilty of the crimes in court. This is the case the Supreme Court is tackling this term. Cato's Jay Schweikert
1: comments. So Mr. McCoy was uh, charged with three murders in uh, 2008. Uh, The uh, victims were uh, his uh, mother, stepfather, and the son of uh, Mr. McCoy's uh, estranged wife. Um, uh, This was in uh, Bossier City, Louisiana. Uh, Mr. McCoy, throughout the entire case, all the proceedings maintained his complete innocence. He said that he was actually out of the state at the time of the murders. Um, He was originally appointed uh, some public defenders— Um, And I'll say this. He was charged. This was a capital case. The prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. Uh, He was originally appointed public defenders but there was – he had a conflict with them because they didn't want to support his uh, subpoenas for witnesses that he said would support his alibi defense. So he eventually dismissed them and then he was qualified by the court to represent himself. Uh, He was declared uh, mentally competent to stand trial and competent to represent himself. Um, But then his family retained another attorney, uh, Larry English, to represent him. Um, And as with his public defenders, there was some conflict between uh, Mr. McCoy and Mr. English about whether they would pursue this alibi defense. But then 16 days before trial, uh, for the very first time, Mr. English told Mr. McCoy that he was planning to tell the jury that he was guilty, that he was responsible for these murders. Uh, In Mr. English's view, um, there was too much evidence against uh, McCoy, and the only reasonable strategy was to admit guilt with the hope of obtaining leniency at sentencing to avoid the death penalty. So
0: the assertion of Mr. McCoy, I am innocent, I didn't do this, there are people who can attest to the fact that I was not present, that I was out of the state or, or something. The attorney had decided this is just a bad strategy. Like true or not, this is a terrible strategy.
1: Yes. uh, Yes, that's right. And Mr. English thought that there was – the state simply was going to have too much evidence uh, and that this alibi could never possibly be taken seriously. And to be fair, there was quite a bit of circumstantial evidence against Mr. McCoy. I mean this was not a a crazy conclusion by his attorney Uh, and this is a strategy that in some death penalty cases – uh, attorneys will follow, um, where there's a lot of evidence they'll focus on mitigation as opposed to the guilt phase. But in this case, Mr. McCoy said, absolutely not. He told his attorney com- you know, in com- completely clear terms, do not do this. I am innocent. Do, I do did not kill my family members. Do not admit
0: that I committed this crime or do not say that I committed this crime. And uh, let's work on a strategy that does not involve that.
1: Exactly right. Um, so th- this, uh, so you know, he told him clearly uh, what he wanted. Um, Mr. English sort of refused to acquiesce and I think in Mr. McCoy's view, this was the end of their professional relationship. But then there was a pretrial conference two days before trial uh, where Mr. English told the judge what he was planning to do, uh, the same admission strategy. Mr. McCoy said, absolutely not. If he's going to do that, I don't want him to be my attorney. I am innocent. I am not admitting guilt. Uh, He requested um, to have Mr. English uh, dismissed and have a a continuance to seek a new attorney. The judge rejected that request. He then uh, requested to go back to representing himself, which remember the judge had previously qualified him to do, but the judge denied that request as well and and, and told Mr. English, you know, you're the attorney. You have to decide, you know, so proceed. Okay,
0: So just just to clarify, about three days before the trial – He learns that his attorney is going to proceed with this strategy. He decides essentially at that point, I don't want you to be my lawyer anymore. 24 hours later, tells the judge basically that and the judge says, sorry. Yes, that's right. So this, this goes to I think the core of what the role of a defendant is in their own defense.
1: Right. Um, so this it, this really goes, I think, to the heart of this issue is is one of defendant autonomy and what, wh- you know, whether the defendant is the master of the defense or not. Um, so and then so at trial, the uh, Mr. English in his opening statement gets up and tells the jury, you know, my client is guilty. My client killed these people. My client is guilty of second degree murder. Uh, Mr. McCoy objects, interrupts, uh, you know, basically tells the judge, hey, I don't think it's constitutional for him to be selling me out like this. Uh, during the trial, um, Mr. McCoy takes the stand himself, uh, testifies in his, on his own in his own defense uh, about his alibi defense, saying he was out of the state, and he's then cross-examined and impeached by his own attorney, who attempts to sort of, you know point out holes in, in, in Mr. McCoy's testimony, uh, and actually manages to introduce evidence against Mr. McCoy that the state itself had not been able to introduce. Uh, it brings in evidence of Mr. McCoy's past uh, suicide attempts and brings in evidence of uh, phone records of a phone that was allegedly in McCoy's possession at the time of the murders. So you know, not only does uh, Mr. English refuse to defend Mr. McCoy's innocence, but he actually in some sense helps the prosecution add up even more evidence against him. Unsurprisingly, at the end of trial, uh, Mr. McCoy is convicted uh, of all, th- all three murders and the jury returns uh, three uh, death sentences. So, you know, the strategy fails. Mr. McCoy is sentenced to death. Uh, the, the Louisiana Supreme Court upholds this conviction, and then that decision is what's on appeal before the Supreme Court. And the basic constitutional question is whether defense counsel can admit a defendant's guilt to the jury over the defendant's express objection.
0: This seems like a very clear-cut case. And if and Scalia were still around, it would seem that much more clear-cut. Uh, but what is the best argument to say, look, you, gotta, you have to trust your attorney— there are uh, certain elements of a trial that just ha- – these things have to proceed. They're, you can't delay beyond a certain point. I mean it seems like that would have to be where the prosecution is coming from here.
1: Sure. I mean you know, I think it's a clear-cut case too. But to lay out the sort of I think strongest position on the other side, um, we know that once a defendant chooses to be represented by counsel – uh, then most tactical trial decisions get delegated to counsel. Of course, you know your lawyer has to consult with you about what they're going to do but ultimately at the end of the day, questions like which witnesses to call, what questions to ask, what particular arguments to make, what evidence to introduce, those are the kinds of questions that ultimately have to be within the attorney's discretion because there's just simply no practical way you could get express consent on all of these tiny details of trial strategy. Um, we do know that there are certain fundamental decisions that the Supreme Court has already said are reserved to the defendant even when represented. Uh, the Supreme Court has given as examples whether to enter a guilty plea, whether to waive the right to a jury trial, whether to testify at trial, and whether to take an appeal. And so the basic question in some sense is whether whether to admit guilt to the jury is one of these fundamental decisions for the defendant, or simply a tactical question? We also know there's a 2004 case called Florida v. Nixon, which involves a superficially similar fact scenario, where uh, you had a defendant uh, in a capital case, where his attorney thought, like here, that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, uh, consulted with the client, and advised him that he, you know, they, they should pursue a mitigation concession strategy. But there, unlike here, uh, Nixon was unresponsive. He neither consented nor objected. Uh, and after multiple consultations, the his attorney proceeded at trial, followed the same strategy, and he was convicted. And the court on appeal said, this is not the sort of decision that requires express consent. If you've consulted with your client and your client doesn't give you a response either way you can then follow what decision you think needs to be best. Th-
0: this seems critically different.
1: Though. It is. Exactly. It is critically different because here, uh, M- Mr. McCoy could not have been clearer or more forceful about his objection uh, throughout the pretrial proceedings, at the trial itself. He was completely consistent in this.
0: So what are the questions here that, I mean, there, there are questions that could be asked that the court, the Supreme Court is not going to deal with uh, in this case that are nonetheless really important.
1: Right. So I think that there are definitely some complicated line drawing questions. I mean, Mr. McCoy's case is the the clearest example of this principle because you had him clearly objecting in advance throughout every stage of the proceeding. And his attorney, you know, not only admitted an element of a crime but said flat out, my client is guilty of second degree murder. You must return a verdict of guilt for second degree murder. He He even purported to say, I am taking the burden off of you. Uh, so at oral argument, a lot of the uh, justices were pressing uh, Mr. McCoy's attorney um, about sort of w- where the lines were here you know w- what if you concede only one element but not the in- not guilt entirely um, or what if you simply refuse to you know what if your defendant says go in and tell them I am innocent or I didn't you know commit this act and you simply say nothing about it and I think the the position that emerged um, uh, at oral argument, uh, uh, Mr. McCoy's attorney there, Seth Waxman, was saying, "You know, our position is y- you shouldn't be able to admit affirmatively admit any element over the defendant's objection, but you don't have to decide that in this case. You know, if you want to reserve on that question and simply say, you know, all we're holding here is you can't admit guilt of a charged crime,' that's enough to decide this case." And he also made clear, and I think this is an important point, that the defendant, you know, th- th- this proposed rule is about what the attorney can't do the attorney can't affirmatively admit guilt it's not a rule about what the attorney must do the defendant we're not the defendant doesn't have a right to insist that the attorney present particular arguments you you can't necessarily say i want you to tell them you know that this element isn't met and you know you you can focus on other elements you can be silent on certain things and that would be usually the best strategy it's just about prohibiting the attorney from affirmatively admitting guilt, which is what happened to Mr. McCoy.
0: Yeah. So the, the defendant can play a significant role in compelling an attorney not to do something. Exactly. But can't play much of a role in compelling an attorney to, to do something.
1: Right. And, and of course, you know, ultimately, you would always hope that there would be consultation w- with the defendant and that ultimately you're going to end up on the same page, right? This is, But ultimately, if there is a conflict at the end of the day between the defendant and the attorney... The strategic questions about what kind of arguments to present is within the attorney's control. If now, of course, this all, all of this can always be reviewed for ineffective assistance of counsel. You know, if, if the uh, attorney, you know, refuses to make particular arguments but actually they would have been winning arguments and it's just a completely unreasonable decision, that can still be reviewed. But what we're, we're saying here is this isn't about whether the attorney was effective or not. Uh, I think if you look at this case, Mr. English, you know— mm-hmm was was probably doing the best he thought he could in a difficult circumstance. And to be fair to him, he was in the Fifth Circuit and there is a Fifth Circuit case um, which basically says in this kind of situation, uh, the attorney gets to decide. That's the minority position. Most lower courts that have looked at this have have, have sided with Mr. McCoy and said this is within the defendant's control. But, you know, the the uh, Mr. English here thought that this was his legal responsibility.
0: It, so the, it seems like there are several things in this particular case where – you can say that Mr. McCoy was prevented from uh, making good on certain constitutional rights.
1: I think that's right. Um, I think that you know the, the he uh, the, the, all the trial rights that you have—the right to have a you know jur- have a jury trial, the right to confront witnesses against you, the right um, not to be forced to take the stand, but to take the stand if you want to. These rights are all feeble and hollow if. An admission of guilt can be forced upon you without your consent. Well, and
0: he he tried to fire his attorney. Exactly. At, in a, at an inopportune time, perhaps.
1: But. but the soonest opportunity he could raise it with the judge because, again, remember that you know, he only found out that his attorney was planning to pursue this strategy uh, two weeks before trial. And then the first time he was in front of the judge after that, he said, you know, absolutely not. I do not want him to do this. I am innocent. Um, I think if you look at the record, there's a good argument that his right to self-representation was denied because he wanted to represent himself and the court had previously said he was competent to do so. But ultimately, I don't think that's what matters because you're – you know, uh, defendants definitely do have a right to self-representation if they want to. But you're not forced to choose between the assistance of counsel and the presumption of innocence. Uh, the state's position here is that, you know, hey, if you want to be in charge of your defense, that's fine. You just have to represent yourself. Um, but I think the response to that is, no, you have a constitutional right to the assistance of counsel. There's no doubt about that today. Uh, and that's not – you don't have to choose between that and having an attorney who will be zealously uh, advocating on your behalf, defending your innocence.
0: Uh, and I, I I always do this. But tell me what this is going to look like uh, before the Supreme Court. I'm, I'm thinking of justices who have a great regard for uh, – keep defendants and, of course, we're down one Antonin Scalia who had a great regard for the rights of, of defendants and people in their ability to make their own decisions about uh, issues at trial. But maybe – I'm thinking Sonia Sotomayor would write for the majority in this case. I
1: think that's right. So I was – so oral arguments were yesterday morning, which I attended. And overall, I was I was pretty encouraged. Um, <clears throat> I think that there was definitely aggressive questioning all around. I think the justices were very interested in this. Um, and a lot of them were certainly pushing Mr. Waxman to sort of articulate these line drawing issues because I think that was a concern for them. But um, – uh, certainly, Justice Sotomayor, um, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Kagan se- seemed you know, to all grasp that the core issue here was very important. I think Justice Kagan, as well as the chief, um, r- articulated what I think is really the heart of, of the issue here, which is that this isn't about the means of achieving a client's objective. This is what a client's objectives actually are. Uh, because Mr. English's perspective was, hey, I have to do everything I can to save my client's life. But that wasn't Mr. McCoy's concern. Mr. McCoy didn't want to do anything at all to minimize the chance of a, the death penalty. He wanted to vindicate his innocence. He didn't want the opprobrium of saying in open court, I killed my family members. And that's a value judgment. That's not a strategy question. That's – and um, so Justice Kagan I think said
0: uh, – Yeah, what are you willing to risk in order to get what you want? Right.
1: Uh, and she said that Strickland, which is the ineffective assistance case, is an awkward fit here because English probably did nothing wrong if the goal was avoiding the death penalty. But that wasn't Mr. McCoy's goal. So I thought that that, that argument was well received. I think uh, Justice Kagan articulated it very clearly. The chief justice was asking a number of questions about that as well. Like, you know, what if he didn't, you know, care about that? What what if he uh, said, you know, look, life in prison is worse. I would, I would rather go all out vindicating my innocence or risking the death penalty because I don't want to spend life in prison as an, as an admitted murderer. Um, and I was also I – mean, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Justice Scalia because you're absolutely correct that he was an ardent defender of uh, criminal defendants' constitutional rights. And I was actually – I was pretty encouraged by um, Justice Gorsuch's questions as well. He was clearly – he asked a number of questions about whether this should be considered structural error. Which means that structural error is an error that if is uh, entails automatic reversal, a new trial without any harmlessness analysis. And he was clearly looking at this. He asked a number of questions about: Isn't this just like Ferretta, You know, if you which is the self representation case. If you're denied your right to self representation, automatic reversal. That's it. And he said, here, you know, you, if you have an attorney who is admitting guilt over your objection, uh, didn't you just not receive the assistance of counsel? Shouldn't that be automatic reversal? Um. So you know, it's. I mean, you don't want to read too much into that, but I think that that showed that he was thinking about this in a in a pretty in a serious sense, taking seriously the Sixth Amendment constitutional rights.
0: How have uh, the interests lined up in this case? I you know I remember the the Kelo case. It seemed very clear that uh, the NAACP, the homeowners associations, and things like that were all very clear that this was uh, not a good not a good thing for. Uh, property owners and the people on the other side were home builders and uh, associations of cities and things like that, people who could make a lot of money off of uh, eminent domain. How did the interests line up in this case?
1: So the uh, amici in support of McCoy in this case, uh, including uh, in aside, aside from the Cato Institute, include uh, several organizations of uh, legal professionals. Um, these include the American Bar Association, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Ethics Bureau at Yale. And even the Criminal Bar Association of England and Wales, I think that brief is in particular is very interesting because it focuses on sort of originalist understanding about what uh, the, the relative role of uh, defendants and their attorneys in the founding era, uh, as well as what happens in commonwealth countries today. And they're basically saying neither then nor now would this ever be tolerable anywhere else. So I think you know what this shows is that everyone who is a legal professional is sort of aghast at what happened here. Uh, and 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 the thrust of a lot of these briefs are, it is never in violation of an attorney's professional responsibilities to defend his client's innocence. Uh, it may not be appropriate to put on certain affirmative defenses. Right? We're not. And, and and to be clear, Mr. McCoy is not demanding as a constitutional right the right to, to demand that his attorney put on his particular alibi defense. But uh, and that may sometimes present certain professional conflicts if you if you you know attorneys can't put on what they know to be false testimony. But it's never unprofessional to put the state to its burden and defend your client's innocence. The only amicus brief on the other side in support of Louisiana was a brief by uh, various states, uh, i.e., sort of by the attorney generals of those states, i.e., other prosecutors. Uh, and it's a good brief. I mean, it's a persuasive uh, brief, and in some ways, I actually think it makes some stronger arguments than Louis, Louisiana's brief does. But ultimately, you know, I, I don't think it's too surprising that states want it to be relatively easier to convict criminal defendants. Um, you know, but if you look at the kind of people who are involved in the legal profession who represent defendants, they are all on the side of Mr. McCoy.
0: Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.